Dinner in Paris. Sounds like a good idea, right? Pour yourself a glass of pink champagne and settle in, because on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we continue our food-inspired tour through the operatic repertoire. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. One of the greatest party scenes in opera is the Brindisi from Act One of La Traviata. With the champagne flowing freely, we are swept up in the opulence of Violetta's Paris. This past season, New York audiences were treated to the Guild's Divas and Dinner course with food historian and chef Carl Raymond. In this episode, we hear how the diva of all divas, Violetta, wined and dined her way through life. One thing I love to do, and those of you that know me know that I love to do this, is I love to invoke that 18th century gastronome and food writer, Briat Savarin, who had the famous quote, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you who you are. Well, I'm going to give you the Carl version of that, because I've, of course, improved upon Briat Savarin. And my version is, tell me what you eat, tell me where you eat it, tell me with whom you eat it, and tell me what else is on the table when you do, and then I'll tell you who you are. Because food, like architecture and design and fashion, really tells us a lot about ourselves as people and the world around us. We're going to take a look at one opera, La Traviata. Is it that romantic story? Is it that tragedy? Is it the opulent setting? Or is it that simply gorgeous music that Verdi wrote? Well, what is it? Well, it's probably all of those things if you ask me. Now, Traviata is an odd opera in some ways to think about when you think about food because, of course, you have those two huge party scenes, the party scene in Act 1 and then the party scene in Act 3. But let's face it, by the fourth act, our heroine isn't eating anything at all because she's dying. So we have to think about um, that a little bit. But Paris in the 1840s, which was the world of La Traviata, was very important from a culinary perspective. And taking a look at Paris in the 1830s and 1840s is very important because the middle and upper classes at the time, their world was surrounded by food. It was about where you ate because you were eating with the newest and most famous chef. And where you were eating was in that brand new invention the restaurant. And it really was, particularly in this case, about who you were eating it with and who was watching you because that could be a potential husband or lover or client. Now, courtesans are very special. What they ate wasn't nearly as important as where they ate it and why, because it was about being as conspicuous as possible in the most public venue that you could. So I want to take a little look at courtesans and look at how they moved about society, and I think that will actually give us some interesting insight into Verdi's very tragic courtesan. Well, we have Verdi's opera, but I really have to wonder how reliable that is. He had to deal with a historical story of sorts, but he also had to deal with some stage conventions, which I think limited some of the historical accuracy of what the story was about. He was most concerned really with the emotions and the drama, and a lot gets sacrificed in producing that gorgeous music. Now, what we see on the operatic stage can make sense for the drama, but in a lot of ways it doesn't really make sense to see and to really view who Violetta was as a courtesan in the 1840s of where she lived and how she lived and particularly where she dined. That period from 1800 to 1850 was arguably the most important period in the development of great classic French gastronomy that we know today. It was the debut of the celebrity chef, the emergence and rise of the restaurant, and it was the period in which French cuisine was truly codified and advanced in a way that it didn't and couldn't since the Renaissance. From a food point of view, it was really that nasty revolution that changed everything. Violetta was in a very special place at a very, very special time in terms of food. And if there's really a thesis 
for this talk. It's to look at exactly what she would have known and how that squares with what we've come to think of more or less as the setting of the opera. Now, I always like to look backward at an original source. We have the novel and the play. The novel was written in 1848, La Dame aux Camélias, and the play came later in 1852, written by Alexandre Dumas, Fils, the son. His father was actually a writer as well and loved food. And Alexandre Dumas' père actually wrote a book on food. Dumas was a very popular and romantic writer, and he is a very credible source. The best source of all is Violetta herself. Now, what I mean by that is La Traviata, or La Dame Camilla, however you want to call her, was real. Dumas based his novel on the life of a real woman, and some consider her the most popular courtesan of her time, the most beautiful and the equally tragic Marie du Plessis. Dumas, he was writing a romantic novel for a very specific audience. He also knew what he was talking about because he, Alexandre Dumas, was one of Marie du Plessis's lovers for an entire year, about a year before she died. He knew exactly what she looked like. He knew what she ate. He knew where she ate it. He shared that with her, and of course, they shared a few amorous embraces along the way too. But the details in his novel about the food are relevant, and I will share them with you. But miraculously, it's Marie herself that has left us with an unintentional trove of evidence. Now, Marie, like Violetta or Marguerite in the novel, she died a tragic death as well from consumption. And when she died, the bills had mounted because of her illness she was not able to maintain the suitors that she once had and it was the creditors not lovers that were knocking at her door she spent much of her final days alone trying potion after potion and concoction after concoction to heal herself and of course it was all in vain and when she died a public auction was held of her belongings so we know exactly what she had from her clothes to her furniture and most importantly drawers and drawers of bills some were paid some were unpaid that were found among her things. And that, along with the diaries of some of her lovers, that allows us to piece together her life and gives us a very intimate portrait of this woman who is based on a character that we think we know very well. So I want to try to tell her story a little bit in addition to talking about the food as a background. I think the most tragic thing of all about this beautiful celebrated courtesan, Marie du Plessis died in 1847 and she was 23 years old. Let's lighten the mood a little bit and let's go to a party. We'll begin with a party and we'll begin with some wine because champagne is important to our story. Traviata begins with the drinking song, the Libiamo.
Now, when Dumas gives us the scene in his novel of Armand, not Alfredo, but Armand, he's seen Marguerite before. And the scene of the first introduction actually takes place at the opera, during an intermission of the opera, not in Marguerite's apartment. And food plays a part. He's introduced to her, but first he must give her a gift. So a friend takes him out to one of the shops nearby and buys her some sugared raisins to present to her as a gift. And it turns out that the real Marie had a great sweet tooth. We have to talk a little bit about champagne. Now, as you know, obviously the wines of France and the food of France justly famous because of the climate, the rainfall, the temperature, the soil, all of these things come together to produce a great taste. And champagne was clearly the drink that inspired the Libiamo and clearly would have been the drink of choice for Violetta and her guests. Champagne, of course, refers to the region also, it's important to remember that champagne is actually predominantly made from Pinot Noir grapes, which are red, but you take out the skins and then you don't have the skins coloring the wine. So that gives it the lighter pale color. The region of Champagne is to the northwest of Paris. The city of Reims, which is really the center of Champagne production, became famous as the site of French coronations all the way back to 987. And it was the local wines that were used in those celebrations from Champagne. But they bore no resemblance to what we think of as Champagne today. They were pale and they were flat, no bubbles. Winemakers were jealous of those heartier, richer wines that were coming out of Burgundy and Bordeaux. Little did they know what they really had. Well, as you know, it's the fermentation in the grapes that makes the wine, and that flat, pinkish local wine was bottled in Champagne in the fall. As it got colder and the winter temperatures began to kick in, it stopped the fermentation, and when it started again in the spring as the weather warmed, that created a pressure in the bottles with the carbon dioxide, and that's how you got the bubbles, and they were trapped inside the bottles. Well, the result was cove after cove of exploding wine bottles because they were stored in glass that was not strong enough to withhold the pressure, and the champignois were horrified, and they wanted to get rid of the bubbles. And they were still trying to fix the problem in 1600 when that famous monk, Dom Perignon, drank the champagne and thought he saw stars. The champagne business didn't really take off until the beginning of the 19th century because there were some tax restrictions and various other laws were finally lifted and winemakers could start producing it in bulk with the bubbles because the British liked the bubbles and the Russians liked the sweetness. Sounds like a marketing formula to me, which of course it was. So a champagne around 1800, 1820, 1830, the period that we are focusing on, would have been pale and a very sweet, bubbly glass. Now, the British contributed to the technology to strengthen up those wine bottles, so that helped. Now we value that very dry champagne, but Violetta, during the Libiamo, her champagne would have been a little sweet. And we know that Marie liked her champagne pink. Now, who was Marie? Marie was at the beginning of this long line, this long trajectory of the 19th century courtesan. When you get to the end of the 19th century and into the Belle Epoque, you had these extraordinary lavish courtesans. And if you want to read about those, read the novels of Zola and Proust, and you will find all of those. But Marie was born in 1824 in a tiny little village in Normandy. Her birth name was actually Alphonsine. She adopted the name Marie later. She was born to the illegitimate son of a priest and a prostitute. And her mother was an abused wife who left the family and she died when Alphonsine was only six. And Marie was put to work as a laundress from the age of 13. And then by 15, she had landed in Paris and became her apprenticeship to a dressmaker. This was classic courtesan material. Marie walks into Paris of the 1840s, and this is a vibrant, creative city. The monarchy was established again, was abolished again. We had a new government that allowed some entrepreneurship everywhere, and she was ready to ply her trade. Now, the food scene was the most dynamic of all, and food played a role in moving Marie into her next level. So one day, when she was about 16 years old, she and a couple of dressmaker friends had earned enough money so that they could go out to the country to be out of the city a little bit and go to a restaurant. It was a restaurant that was considered very popular at the time. And she and her friends sat down for a meal. Now, modest though it was, it was one of the places to be seen. 
Now, the restaurateur, the owner, took a liking to Marie, and he sent a bottle of wine to the table. The message of that was abundantly clear. She accepted, and he soon had set her up in an apartment of her own. She left her job as a dressmaker, and Marie Duplessis was on her career as a courtesan. Now, the problem with this was that Monsieur Noyer, who was the restaurateur, rich though he was, didn't have quite enough money to keep her going, and finally, he left her, but she was on her way. Now, there's this fascinating image that I love and I want to share with you that I find relevant. It was reported by one of the first writers of the period that wrote about um, Marie. And he talks about seeing her on the Pont Neuf, one of the bridges um, connecting um, in Paris. And she was a young courtesan at this point, And she was alone. She was eating an apple. But according to the writer, she was eyeing this stall of frying potatoes nearby. And so he goes and he buys her some of the potatoes and he brings them to her, which she devours very hungrily. Now, I love this detail because I think of that when I see the desperation of Violetta that you see during the Sempre Libra. Now, she knows she's dying and food and grabbing more champagne is a way for her to grab onto life as she knows that it slips away. Now, I love this detail, too, that we know that one of Marie's very last orders before she dies is champagne. And she knows it's the end, and it just makes me feel that I feel that desperation. I don't think Marie or Violetta or Marguerite, whoever you choose to call her, really strayed all that far from that young girl that came to Paris from Normandy. So we have the Sempre Libera, the aria that closes the first act. Ah! <laughs> 
I would like to dig a little deeper now, and let's really get into the food scene in Paris between about 1800 and 1840. Of course, it was the French Revolution that changed everything. Pre-Revolution, aristocrats and nobility sat in their palaces and their chateaus, and they dined on lavish food influenced by the great cooks of the Italian Renaissance. If you were chef and you were lucky enough to be in this environment, you learned your trade by apprenticing or moving around as you had to. There were no restaurants, certainly the way we think of them now. Maybe there was a tavern for some travelers around or maybe some kind of food at a common table or a market stall, but that was about it. And if you were a peasant or even a working family, you just didn't eat anything at all. The food area of Paris was the great market called Leal, which was in the center of Paris. It started in about 1100 and actually was still the market center of Paris all the way until the 1970s. And this shows a little bit later in mid-century, but it makes me think of Covent Garden, certainly in London, or even the markets here in New York with the big grill structures. The New World Order after the revolution put a lot of chefs and a lot of those cooks out of work. And it also created this new bourgeois, this class of entrepreneurs, people that were willing to make money and people were willing to earn it and spend it and spend it and show it off in public. And it was these new entrepreneurs that started a brand new type of business, the restaurant. And some food historians say that the French invented it, they perfected it, but most of all, they marketed it better than anyone else and that the restaurant was actually France's greatest export. Now, there were other places to eat in Europe, but the French turned the restaurant into a complete stage set to show off not only the food, but the clientele. And of course, the height of this is the end of the 19th century into the Belle Epoque. One of the most important things that led to the development of the restaurant, the abolition of the old medieval guild system. And this was important because in the, the guild system, it was dictated who could sell what and when and where. So in Leal, there were different food vendors. There were bakers and fish shops and grills. But due to the guild rulings, a vendor could only sell one or two classes of things. This idea of going somewhere, sitting down, and having multiple different foods to choose from was completely new. Near Leal was the Palais Royal, which was a seat of government post-revolution, but also this was the area where cafes and shops started to spring up, where all classes of Paris started to mill about, because you want to go where the power is. This is where you could be entertained, you could find gossip, you could find lovers, you could drink and you could certainly eat. This was a place to see and be seen. But because it was so close to the seat of power, you also found out what was going on politically and socially. Now, the first restaurants, as we know today, they began as coffee houses. And one of their greatest, most popular things was coffee, yes, but it was ice cream. And Parisians loved their ice cream, still do. Now, when Marie arrived from Normandy, things had moved yet again away from the Palais Royal because they were freer in those years after the revolution. You had the new bourgeois class. People wanted to see and be seen. And it was the development of the Grand Boulevards that we think of so much in Paris now. And of course, that was expanded in the 1860s with Haussmann. But it was the development of these great streets. That's where you could wander around and show off your money. And the most famous at this period was the Boulevard des Italiennes. And the street over the years had different names, and it was expanded in the course of history as well. But in the 1840s, it was called the Boulevard des Italiens, still is today, because of the Théâtre des Italiens, which was very nearby. And if you remember back to last week, that was where Rossini came as music director about 20 years before all this. Paris had a number of theaters, and interestingly, similarly, a number of these buildings are still there. Today, they're often movie theaters or, or concert halls, but the two main venues for opera was the Théâtre des Italiens for light, bubbly comic opera, and of course, the Opéra, which was transferred to the Palais Garnier later on in the century. That is where you had the classic, the Gluck, the Rameau, the Lully, and the works were sung in French. But the Boulevard des Italiens became the restaurant center of Paris. And that was changing and moving from that old world of the Palais Royal. And restaurants became more fashionable. People loved sitting in these grand interior spaces, eating this new creative food. And the notion of the celebrity chef was born. Previously, any chef of talent or note 
cooked only for the aristocrats in their chateau. Now, virtually anybody, if you were willing to pay for it and could pay for their genius, you could have it. Now, one of the earliest restaurants that got uh, some fame was called Le Rocher de Cancale, the rocks of Cancale. Cancale is a town in Brittany, so this was the rocks of Brittany. It was opened in 1804, but that became popular for this new food and this new consumer. And this was seafood, and particularly oysters were famous here. One of the characteristics of these restaurants is that their menus were gigantic, which is interesting because when you think of a typical restaurant menu here in New York, they're gigantic. The Rocher de Cancale had a menu with 10 lamb dishes, 17 veal, 11 beef, 22 poultry, 27 vegetables and side dishes, and 30 desserts. This was new. Their famous dish, which you've all heard of, the Sole Normand, was invented here, which was a sauce made from fish stock and wine. Then you rolled the sole fillets up and you placed them in a baking dish on a bed of shallots. Then you added some shellfish and mushrooms and shrimp and scallops and poured all of the sauce over that. Then you baked it until the fish was just barely done. You strained out the juice. Then you made a bourmanier, which is that paste of butter and flour. It's not a roux, but it's a thick kneading of that. You whisked that into it. Then you took egg yolks and creme fraiche, which this whole business together, and poured that over the fish. And like Le Grand Véfour, Le Rocher de Cancale, is still there. Back to the Boulevard des Italiens. The Café Anglais, the Café Riche, Tortoni's, and the Maison Dorée were the hot spots, and that is where society went, including Marie Duplessis. Now, the culinary world was under the influence of a truly great chef at this point. This is one who never had a restaurant, but it was the cooks that trained with him that did, and that was, of course, the great Antoine-Marie Carême. Now, Carême single-handedly changed French cooking and moved it forward to become the great French cuisine. And it wasn't until Auguste Escoffier later in the century that really brought it into the 20th century. Carême was born a few years before the French Revolution to a very poor family. In fact, the family was so poor that his parents abandoned him as a child by the gates of Paris. He was found by a cook. He was apprenticed and eventually picked up by the great pastry chef, Sylvain Bayer, who had a shop in the Palais Royal. Carême eventually opened his own shop, and he became known for these great sugar concoctions. They were called pièces montées, or built things, sculptural architectural pieces. Now, this was important because this allowed whoever the owner was that employed Carême to show off their wealth by using all of these ingredients and all of the sugar, because it was expensive then, and it, of course, showed off Carême's great skill. Carême went on to work for royalty and nobility. He was the chef to Talleyrand. He was the chef to George IV in England. And he was even got an invitation to go to Russia to cook for the Tsar. But it was the chefs that worked and trained with Carême that opened the restaurants along the Boulevard des Italiens and throughout the 19th century. And chefs were the great marketing machines of the 19th century. If they created a dish and they named it for you and people flocked to your restaurant to taste it, it was better than Instagram. The Café de Paris was one of the fam most famous as well. Now this was located in an old Hôtel Particulier, which was an old house that was once belonged to aristocrats and it retained that old look. There were beautiful antique mirrors, and they were lit by oil lamps and the glow of a fire. And the chef that worked there actually worked for the Duchess, the Duchesse de Berry, and became very famous for a veal dish that people flocked to. Now, the rules of admittance to the Café de Paris were pretty strict. It seems like there was kind of a door policy. They had, as we'd call it today, nobody was tolerated who couldn't lay claim to some sort of distinction or originality, a kind of invisible moral barrier existed between shutting out the mediocre, the insipid, and the insignificant who passed by and did not linger knowing their place was not there. This comes from a wonderful book by the writer Julie Cavanaugh, who wrote a book called The Girl Who Loved Camellias. And if you want the full story of Marie, I encourage you to read that. But this was another place. This was the Café Tortoni, and this was absolutely a favorite of Marie's. And it was founded in the 18th century by a Neapolitan who made real Italian ices. Now, when you entered one of these cafés, you were usually greeted by a very elegantly dressed dame du comptoir. Now, she was the woman that stood by the door, and if you were having coffee, she's the one that doled out the sugar to you. Because, again, this was very much 
uh, a high-priced item. And even if the cafe was elegant, you would more often than not encounter a little dusting of sand on the floor. And this is to prevent those busy, hurrying waiters from slipping. Now, I want to suggest here, to relate it back to Marie, that it was in this world of cafes and restaurants that Marie, or our operatic Violetta, would really have felt free. She was among those who were doing the same thing that she was doing. It allowed her some control in her life, and she wasn't a victim at all. And to me, one of the reasons that she becomes even more tragic as she becomes more ill and alone is that she's confined to her bedroom and she can't participate in any of the scene. Now, Verdi illustrates that in an interesting way. She hears revelers outside around the carnival time and goes to the window, and they're having a party and they're seizing life. And of course, she can't do that. Now, one of the most famous and popular restaurants that cropped up along the boulevard was the great Maison Dorée. And that was perhaps the most special, at least for Marie. Now, the Maison Dorée was opened in 1840 at the height of all this culinary frenzy. It was on the site of an earlier restaurant, and the Tortoni is right next door to this, and the Café Riche is on the other side. And this was the epicenter of food along the Boulevard des Italiens. And the real name was called the Restaurant de la Cité, but nobody ever called that. It was the Maison Dorée, the Golden House. It had an impressive cellar of 80,000 bottles of wine, not just French, but also Spanish and Italian. The restaurant inside was created as one of these grand spaces. It was a lavish Moorish style. It had several levels. It looked like a stage set. There were two floors, and you could also get a very private dining salon for very private whatever. Apparently, salon number six was the one that was the most coveted. Mirrors, essential to the decor. Now, when you look at a lot of 18th century architecture, even in this country, mirrors everywhere. This was not about fixing your hair. It was often, as many tour guides will tell you, about reflecting light. And yes, that's true. But in the restaurants, it was about making sure you could see who was in the room and who they were with. Now, interestingly, in this building, Alexandre Dumas, the feast, he worked on a newspaper at one point in his life. He moved his offices here, so they were in the building of the Maison Dorée. This was one of Marie's earliest lovers. This is Aguinard, the Duc de Grammont. Now, it was a really nice title, but he was a little bit lacking in funds and could not support Marie as long as he would have liked. But it was at the Maison Dorée where they first met. After an evening out at the opera ball, a boisterous young crowd descended on La Maison Dorée, calling for bottles of champagne, gambling, and crashing out tunes on the piano until dawn. One half of the restaurant was for the customers from the street, but the other overlooked the Rue Lafitte and was reserved for important regulars who had sheltered themselves from the curious eyes in the private booths piled high with soft cushions. Accompanying Marie, that evening was a delicate 18-year-old, a blonde woman, who she had adopted as a protege. At La Maison Dorée, the pair was again in focus, and all eyes were on them. And it was not long before a group of young men came to sit at the adjoining table. One was Agenor. Reminding Marie that he had met her before, he introduced his friends and graciously invited the girls to join them. What would have been a modest dinner became a princely feast. After midnight and after much champagne, Marie participated in a heady game of 21, which was gambling, and she was a tremendous gambler, which is another way to run up the debts. The story continues that evidently at 2 a.m., the girls returned to their carriages on the arms of two men. Marie was with Agenor, who asked to see her the following evening for dinner, and dine they did. They went the following evening at 6 o'clock at the Café Anglais. The next night, they reunited at a box at the opera, and then they had a dinner at the Maison Dorée following that. What's important about this, I think, is that it shows the typical life and schedule of a courtesan. Now, this is number 22, Rue d'Antin. By this point, Marie was installed in an apartment here. And I think this is important because when you see the spaces where she lived, it makes you think back to those stage productions that we see with particularly different eyes. I think it's fascinating to think about this building where she had her apartments is now a hotel, so backpacking tourists and students are now wandering around the rooms that she once, once had. But her routine was to get up at about 11 o'clock in the morning. She had a light breakfast. She dressed. Her morning was filled with hairdressers and dressmakers and delivery men. And then she would go for a drive in the Bois de Boulogne before coming home in the afternoon to receive a non-professional guest, 
Then she would dress again, go out to dinner, go to the opera or a ball, then would come home with a small group. A client may have been among them, and they would stay up until the early hours of the morning. Now, perhaps, now of course, this was the danger of the life of a courtesan that you may fall in love, which you didn't want to do. That was called an amant de coeur, somebody that you really loved. They might appear and leave by 6 o'clock in the morning when she was finished with her client, and then she could finally go to sleep. Now, Marie's last apartment where she died is also still there. It's on the Boulevard de la Madeleine. It's near the Church of the Madeleine, where she, her own funeral took place. Now, one of the great events in a courtesan's life was the opera ball, and particularly a masked ball, which was even more exciting to seduction, and a gypsy theme was even better. And it's generally thought that Marie's lover, Édouard de Perigueux, was the basis for Armand in the novel and consequently the basis for Alfredo. So he's important. Well, he met Marie following a masked ball at the Opéra during Lent of 1844. And this was recounted by a journalist and a diarist at the time. A young woman in domino costume intrigued a group of young men at the ball, and they invited her to supper afterwards. And of course, she unmasked. One was astonished to discover it was Marie Duplessis, and a spark was ignited between her and Edouard. The incident is significant not only for the spark, which might have ignited all of La Traviata, but also because we know what Marie had for dinner that night, and it was lobster and prawns, accompanied by her request for pink champagne. So, let's go to a masked ball.
Now, this is interesting because this raises the question of the dinner party that we know so well in Act One of Traviata. Now, when Marie dined at home, it certainly wasn't the grand celebration that we have been trained to expect. She didn't have the space. Furthermore, that introduction to Alfredo, as we've, we've intimated here, would more than likely have taken place in a box, the theater, or the restaurant. Now, we know that Marie's dining table in her final Paris apartment from the auction records after her death seated 12. We also know that she ordered food from the nearby Café Voisin, which was across the street, or the Maison Dorée, which was also nearby, and had it brought back and delivered to the house here where it was prepared by her maid. Now, we know she dined occasionally on classic roast chicken accompanied by some salad, always with wine, sometimes a Bordeaux she liked, and of course her favorite champagne. And two of the, the special dishes that likely made it to Marie's table, one was called l'homme le chevalier, which was considered very rare, very rare freshwater fish at the time. This we now know as Arctic char. And also sautéed livers of monkfish, which were served with onions and mushrooms, Think of sort of a foie gras. This was one of the great special dishes of the Maison Dorée. And by the way, if you think there is nothing to say about sautéed monkfish livers, you just Google it and you'll see what I mean. Now, we find orders for mints and pastilles and candies that filter drawers. And she did occasionally order some special treats. Asparagus was one of them that she loved. Duck, another among her favorites. Omelets. A few dozen oysters and a beef filet were all things that she brought in here for dinner. In Dumas' novel, The Lady of the Camellias, when it was Armand, not Alfredo, when he first meets Marguerite, it was in her apartment after a night of theater with a small group of friends. A suggestion is made to go out to dinner, but Marguerite asks her maid to order in, and they do. And when Armand returns for an evening alone with Marguerite, Another order is placed for cold chicken, some strawberries, and of course, wine. Now you have to know, Alexandre Dumas, he knew exactly what he was talking about. So the idea of a full staff with butlers and cooks and chefs was likely a scene created for grand effect and not likely how it happened. When we look at the production of Traviata before the one that we have now, Zeffirelli revised his concept of the first act what happens when the curtain opens and it begins after the prelude is that it's dark and there are two servants that are asleep and the stage lightens up and Violetta returns with a group of friends and you can see the design of Salon here is much smaller and much more intimate. Nonetheless, grand dinners could occur and I always go back for this time period to Balzac and La Comédie Humaine and his various novels because there is a fantastic description that he writes that really allows us to get into that room. The room was adorned with silk and gold. Countless wax tapers set in handsome candelabras lit the slightest detail of gilded friezes and the delicate bronze sculptures and the splendid colors of the furniture. The sweet scents of rare flowers set in stands tastefully made of bamboo filled the air. Everything, even the curtains, was pervaded by elegance without pretension and there was a certain imagination about it all that acted like a spell on the mind of a needy man. A huge table welcomed the guest and each paid his tribute of admiration to the splendid general effect of that long table, white as a bank of freshly fallen snow, with its symmetrical line of covers crowned with the pale golden rolls of bread. Rainbow colors gleamed in the starry ray of light, reflected in the lights of the mirrors and the tapers that crossed and recrossed with each other indefinitely and reflected in the silver domes that wet both the appetite and the curiosity. In old French style, all the dishes were laid out on the table. Poultry, roasts, meats, fish, shellfish, and vegetables were all presented simultaneously. The point was to be dramatic. Roasts surrounded by garnishes, fish on a bed of greenery. The center of the table may have had one or more food sculptures. Here's the influence of Karem. Columns and plinths of supports of roast turkeys and chickens acted like sculpted pieces made to look like birds or griffins. Dinner was a performance carried out by a large staff and choreographed to perfection. 
I think it's important to sort of end here with a brief look at how a formal meal in 19th century Paris would have been served, whether it was in a private home or a restaurant. The notion of having everything down on a table except perhaps the desserts is very un-French. A French meal can and should take hours, and it certainly did in the 19th century. And the idea was to allow for conversation and digestion and appreciation but the classic French concept, including a dividing a meal into what were called services, not exactly courses, but these were dishes grouped around a concept. Within each service, there would be multiple dishes. So in old French style, you have had a group of dishes in each service served at the same time. However, a new style was appearing in mid-19th century France, and it was service à la Russe, Russian style, in which dishes were served in each service separately, sort of what we think of as courses. Now, here's sort of a breakdown of how a French meal would have worked. The premier service would have included soup, always soup to start, then likely a fish, then an entree, a lighter dish. And an entree has become, of course, our main dish. Well, entree was just an introduction to other dishes in a French meal. The second service, the second service, would have included a roast, grilled meats, followed by the true piece de resistance of the meal, maybe a whole stuffed sturgeon, for example. An assortment of salads would accompany that. The third service would invariably be a series of vegetable dishes. This was called the entremet. And the fourth service, of course, the dessert, followed by courses of fruit or cheese or ice. Now, Dumas, the father, Dumas père, outlines all of this in a book that he wrote later in the century. And you could also find him down in the kitchen, always talking to chefs at restaurants. But I want to finish up by giving you an idea of some of the dishes. I told you that chefs at this time were really creating dish after dish. And if you named it for someone, as I said, then that was something. Last week, we talked about the Tornados de Rossini. Well, here are some typical dishes. Turtle soup was one of the great delicacies. Turtle was a delicacy known for the lightness of the flesh. It was always cooked with sherry and some herbs. A chicken suprême with mushrooms and a cream sauce. Pigeon, which is squab cutlets. Sautéed rabbits with cucumber. Lamb cutlets with mushroom puree. Asparagus again with butter, lots of it. A consommé with spinach and a salad of young chicory, you might find that in a meal. Trout a la hussard, which is where you boned a whole fish, you seasoned it with butter and fine herbs, you wrapped it up in paper, and you baked it, served it with more butter and a white wine sauce, and maybe a little white pepper. Rabbit a la venitienne. This was a braise with some white wine and a sauce with little tender pieces of veal. Filet de boeuf a la paysan, which was a sauce with more mushrooms, and, sh and shallots, a little bit of creme fraiche, and a braised guinea fowl with tarragon and roast chicken with truffles. Well, I hope we've made you a little hungry. Most importantly, I hope I've given you a little bit of a new lens to look at La Traviata and certainly Violetta with. We're going to finish our last clip here. It's very short, but it's the most appropriate one. It is the scene of the exit of the guests from Violetta's party in Act One. So with that, bon appétit. Carl Raymond discussing Violetta and Parisian cuisine in La Traviata. 
Be sure to follow both the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on social media as we are always posting new and exciting content. Next time, in the final installment of our Divas and Dinner series, Spanish cuisine in operas like Carmen and The Barber of Seville. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.